Bibles because we think that, I mean, I, the screens are very helpful, but I'm kind of old school. I know, like, when I read the Bible, I'm like, oh, it was on the right side, bottom right. It was, it was there. I underlined it. I know it was there. And I don't know, I guess I think everybody's like that. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have some ushers that will bring you a Bible. If you want to keep this Bible and you don't have a Bible, it's yours. We'd, we'd love to pass out the Word of God. If you don't have one, it's absolutely yours. If you just need to borrow it today, there's on the way out. Just go ahead and toss it on that table on the way out. No one's going to be weird if you take it to your car, though. So um, we, are, we are well past the middle of our series on the book of Revelation. And um, we've been getting some good feedback on it. Thank you so much for, for bearing with this. I know it's a long series. It's the longest series I've ever done um, on this book. And so we're going to be in Revelation 15. If you want to open your Bible there, stick your finger there, and we're going to get there in a minute. Today is kind of nice. It's 4th of July weekend, and it's actually the shortest text in Revelation, right? It's kind of, we get out of church a little early today. It's 4th of July. Today. Um, it's one of the shortest sections, and in many ways is setting up the final scenes. And so I'm really glad to see the amount of people here today, because 4th of July weekend is usually pretty sparse. So I'm glad you're here, because this is, it, 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 you know, it's one of those things you could just teach right through and go into Revelation 16, but it's, it's really setting up for the church, something important that I want to talk about this morning. It's a, um, so today I don't want to do the whole retelling of every single chapter of Revelation. Uh, I'll just give you some of the, the basics here of the last couple of weeks. Um, one of the things that's an important way to look at Revelation, commentator said, to view Revelation as a play, as a playwright. And once I read that, the entire thing I looked at differently. Opening scenes, and, and it's like John is trying to communicate this message and this drama. So, so how do we understand it differently? So I would just encourage you, as we read the text this morning, think about it that way. So impactful as we read the text that way. Um, as John, the author of Revelation, tells us, that he's retelling us the story of the church versus Satan, good versus evil. You know, in Revelation, there's all these dichotomies all the way through that John pits against each other. They're contrasting with each other. And so as we get into this text today, I just want to give you this quick retelling of the last few weeks. First, John uses this story, this very common story that was told in this time, Leto and the dragon, where Leto um, birthed Apollo, and Apollo went and defeated the dragon, except for John used different characters. The woman who represented all the church, represented Mary, represented Israel, represented um, the New Testament church, represented all that. The boy, the son, the baby represented Jesus. And the dragon, the serpent, represented Satan. And it was this whole idea about how God, um, I'm sorry, that Satan was cast out of heaven and did not want the good news. He desperately wanted to stop Jesus. Because he would be defeated. But the text tells us he was not powerful enough to defeat Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah, he was not powerful enough to defeat Jesus. And so he ends up on the shore defeated. But he calls up these two beasts. And this is where you get the real tricky parts of Revelation. The, the scary stuff. The, the 666 stuff. And the mark of the beast. And all that stuff. But really what John is trying to show us is that these two groups. 
The one, the 666 groups, the one that follow the mark of the empire, and one, this, remember we calculated Jesus' number, which is 888, which is completely perfect, versus 666, which is completely imperfect. And you have these two groups sort of battling against each other, and we know who's going to win. In fact, last week when we left off, they were literally these two groups on one on Mount Zion, one sort of looking down at this other group, just sort of staring each other down while this angel is, is up there uh, talking. It's really this amazing picture. And what, what John is trying to tell us is that the church wins. All the way through this, the gospel is preached that Jesus' blood overcomes everything. Is simply in a language that the first century church would have understood. We don't really talk in apocalyptic language anymore. But this is simply the language that the first century would have understood. They would have had books, and there's apocryphal texts that, that, that have this type of language in it. There's Old Testament texts like Ezekiel, parts of Isaiah, parts of Daniel that are apocalyptic, and that we understand that are all symbolism. And there's nothing different here except for the entire book of Revelation is symbolism. So turn with me to Revelation 15, and I'm just going to, like I said over the last few weeks, it's my goal to read every single word of this out loud to you because Revelation chapter 1 says, read all of this to the church. So we're going to do that. Except for they would have done it in one sitting, right? It's only taking me 28 weeks. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with seven last plagues. Last because with them, God's wrath is completed. And I saw it looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image. Over the number of its name, they held harps given, them, given to them by God. By the way, side point, if any of you ever wonder, like, where did the angels with harps thing come from? Right here. Anyway. Uh, they had harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just as true are your ways, King of the nations, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous act have been your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law that was open. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues, and they were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore seven, I'm sorry, wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could ever, or no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. As I said every week, I think it's pretty clear we could just go home now, right? It's not clear. That's the problem with Revelation, that it's not totally clear. And now the focus in Revelation is back to heaven. One of the things about Revelation, is that, and you'll, you might notice this if you, on the third or fourth reading, is that the focus shifts. It always shifts back and forth, back and forth, to the throne room, back to earth. Throne room, back to earth. And what it's trying to say and is trying to help us to see is that God's new heaven and new earth are coming to invade earth. That's what he's trying to get you to see. That there's a new reality. There's a different reality in heaven. And that you need to wear different kinds of glasses in order to see what God is really doing. 
There's more to reality than meets the eye. And I think that's what John is trying to show us every time we go into this picturesque view of heaven. That there's a different scene that you could not fathom, but it means something interesting. This passage is somewhat perplexing, though, and it, it seems like a really joyous pronouncement of God's wrath, right? It's like, yay, God's wrath is coming. Like, that doesn't seem right, right? Like, that seems, like, should we be happy about that? I, I we? It, it seems weird, right? It, it seems a little bit weird. There's this joyous pronouncement of God's wrath. And then all nations and all kings and all this stuff will all come to worship because of his wrath? I just, what? And I think part of the reason why we initially say, wait a minute, what? <laughs> Is because we might not understand God's wrath. Um, so imagine with, with me for a second, first century Rome. Now there's not a magistrate or a judge in every single city. Or let's even go back to Jerusalem. There's not necessarily a judge in every single town. So imagine with me for a second that in your town, let's just use your household. In your household, there's some conflicts, right? Raise your hand if you've had conflict in your household in the last, like, month. Okay. And now, raise your hand if you, uh, if you didn't raise your hand and just say, I lied. No, I'm joking. I'm totally joking. Um... We all have this conflict, and we have conflict around people that we live with. We have conflict all the time. And imagine, you know, just with me, if you will, for a second. Somebody steals, let's, let's say you're a lady, and somebody steals your purse, okay? You know who it is. You see this person every day. You know they stole your purse. But you can't do anything about it because you're weak and powerless and a widow and stuff like that, and this person's powerful, well, one of the things that you wait for is for the judge to come to town because that judge cannot be corrupted, cannot be bribed, and the judge makes things right. That's what the judge does. It makes things right. And so imagine with me, if you, if you will, for a second, that there's all these, these things that are, that are broken by sin in your town, and, and, and there's stuff that, that's just breaking your heart, or you, you've been wronged, or you've been oppressed, or something like that, and you're just waiting for the judge to come to town. It would be a joyous thing when that judge came to town, because then all the wrongs would be made right. There's another way to look at God's wrath, and that is in our kids, right? I used to say, and, and I think foolishly now, I was, um, it, well, I'm not sure if it's foolish. I don't know. I, don't, I keep going back and forth on what I think about this, but um, back in seminary, we, we'd have these theological discussions all the time. It's like, what would you do if somebody broke into your house or something like that? And I'm like, oh, I've never, I, I couldn't take anybody's life or whatever. And it's like, then, you know, oh, I love them too much. I want to love them. And, and that's true. You want to love them, all that. But then when you have kids, it's like, if you touch my baby, you know what I mean? Like, when you have kids, you're like, you touch my child, you turn into Liam Neeson from Taken, okay? You're like, I have a very particular set of skills. I will use them on you, you know? But part of your wrath is your love. I'm getting into next week's sermon a little bit. Next week's sermon really hits on the last few verses of this and all of the next chapter. But that's part of what wrath is. It, wrath is a part of God's love. And, and, and so this wrath that's being announced, this judgment that's being announced, is that the judge is coming to make things right. 
that were previously wrong. The judge is coming. It's his pronouncement. It's setting up what's going to happen with these seven last bold judgments. And, and we're going to, again, get, I'm getting into next week. But we're, there's so much more next week that's into that. And, and, and we'll talk more about it then. But my point is that people would be excited for the judge to come. People would be excited that, that wrongs that were wrong would be made right again. God's judgment is not to, to take people and crush them under his thumb and go, ha, 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 you know? God's judgment is to make the wrongs of the world right again. And that's one of the things we consistently see over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. That would be exciting. As we think about it last week, um, we left off, like I said, with the 666 group, the people that, that got the mark of the beast, and we left off with the 888 group, and, and, and these people were kind of forming armies against each other. And, and what John is doing is he's pre-announcing this judgment that's to come. He's saying this group over here that's the 666 group, they're not going to last forever. That there is an end to this. And by the way, in the first century, that's really good news. We... we we, we tend in, in, when you think about world religion, and, and especially first century, one of the things that, that was believed at the time is that time and life is kind of all cyclical, and, and there's really no beginning and no, really no end, and there's even still some Eastern philosophies um, that, that teach that. There's really no beginning, really no end, and it just sort of is. And what John is saying here is that this is all going to that Jesus is coming back. The judge is coming back. Are you ready? It's the parable of the ten virgins in, in the, the Gospels. Be prepared. Are you ready? Is your wick trimmed? For some of you, you just went, ah. And some of you went, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. We'll get to it later. And remember, the, the theological center of this book is God sitting on his throne holding this scroll, and Jesus is the only one worthy to pop the seals off and to lay it out, that the new creation is coming. And part of that new creation coming is that the destroyers of the earth, the destroyers, the 666 folks, they got to be destroyed because they will continue to destroy the earth. God has given them every single chance for repentance. And we're going to see more and more as we go to the next few chapters that God even gets bigger. This, this 888 group really goes, you need to repent. You need to stop following the beast. Come follow me. But still, no one repents. So the judge is coming. But I think the biggest theme of this text, and the the thing that I want to focus on today, is is out of verses 2 and 3. Look back at that with me for a second. It says, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with a fire, standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over its name, they, they held harps given to them by God and sang the song uh, God's servant Moses and the Lamb. Now, if you've ever been up to like Santa Barbara area, you've seen out on the ocean, there's all these um, oil rigs. If you've ever seen them burning uh, some of their impurities, one of the interesting things is, is that the sea looks red, Right? Or if you've ever seen, like, maybe you've been to a really nice tropical location and the sun's setting and it just the ocean is glowing red. Have you ever seen that before? 
That's the image that we're seeing here. There's a sea of glass, but it looks like it's fire. Oh, wait, is it the Red Sea? Yeah. One of the things John consistently does is he pulls back from the Exodus story, and he brings it back to remind them what is going on. So there's this Red Sea in the Song of Moses and that, that John is talking about here. And so he's trying to clearly remind the church. I mean, he's not even like putting this in code. He is just blatantly the Song of Moses, remember it. And he's, he's getting there. So flip with me to Exodus 14. So we could, we're not actually going to look at the whole song. I'd encourage you to go home and, and the, the song is in Exodus 15. So we're in Revelation 15, Exodus 15. But we're going to look at verse 14 for a moment. Or chapter 14. If you've been with us um, series, one of the things that you've known is that bodies of water in the Hebrew mind are chaos. Darkness, that's where the, the depths, the unknown, uncertainty. When sailors went off onto sea, it was like, what are these people doing? They're crazy. The sea represents chaos and darkness. And there's great Hebrew words, tohu and bohu, but won't get into all that, what it all means today. Um, essentially means chaos. So Exodus 14, uh, verses 10 through 16. Go, go with me there. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, I'm sorry, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified and cried out to the Lord. Now I'll pause right here for one second. One of the things I should have said to set this up. The Israelites are leaving Egypt. And Charlton Heston is leading them. Charlton Heston. If any, I don't know why. Just I that movie was on repeat as a kid for some reason, and and it just every time I see Moses, I'm thinking, my people, go, you know. And then Moses said, "You could rip this rifle." I'm kidding. Charlton Heston joke, joke in the middle of scripture. Anyways, he Moses is leading people out after all these plagues. Pharaoh has finally allowed Moses' group to go. And it's really like, okay, fine, get out of here. Just leave. I can't, the land can't handle you anymore. And then Pharaoh realizes, whoops, all my cheap labor's gone. What do I, I need to go back and get them. You know, and he starts to pursue them. So as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us in the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Which, side note, is my kids every time we're on a road trip, right? Just like, this is what I hear. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. I think I said this once before. Just keep that verse in your mind for Revelation 19 in a few weeks. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I love Moses' response. The Israelites are, What are you doing? 
look, we're being pursued by evil, and in front of us there's chaos. There's nowhere to go. And Moses says, just, God says, go. You have to walk through the chaos. Get moving. Don't cry. Get going. Get moving. Get through it. What I find interesting is that God didn't go around the chaos. God didn't say, I will lift you up over the chaos. God didn't say, I will wipe the chaos away. He said, go through the chaos. And that's a very important point this morning, because every text on this says they have to walk through the Red Sea. There's something important that happens when you walk through chaos in life with God. And then if you look at chapter 15, Moses and Miriam are standing on opposite sides of the Red Sea, singing this song. Na, 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 you can't get us. I mean, that's kind of what the song is. If you, if you, yeah. Our God's better than your God. You're defeated. We're right. You're wrong. I mean, it's not that petty. But it's, it, it's a song saying, we made it. There's something that's really interesting that happens through these two verses, or through these two chapters. But before we get there, uh, I'm, we'll just throw this up on the screen real quick. Psalm 74, verses 13 and 14. I, I, I want you to get what's in John's mind here as he's writing all this text. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters of the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of Leviathan and gave it as food to the creatures of the desert. See, in the Old Testament, it was Egypt that was the beast. And God uses the very chaotic water that they came from to crush them. One of the things we have to remember is that this early church, the early church would have seen this as Rome and stuff like that, but what John is trying to say is anytime that you pursue this human power and you try and pursue this power for yourself, then, then literally you're becoming this beast. And that's what Egypt was. Egypt was the first beast. And the psalmist compares it to as, as the this beast being crushed in the water by the Red Sea. You know, the Red Sea caves in on them. They all drown. And, and, and so this is the way that they would have looked at this. It, it's not just Rome. It's Babylon. It, it's Egypt. It's, it's at one point, it's Israel. Because Israel turns into this beastly nation when... Um, began to count the weight of his gold, and it ended up being 666, and he kept pursuing that. And Solomon was the forced labor king of Israel, and Solomon began to forget God, and Solomon began to build altars to the other gods. And that set Israel on this trajectory for God to say, you crushed the oppressed, you crushed the poor, I'm taking you out. And he sent them to Babylon. God has a way of humbling the oppressor. But I think what's most important today, just in this time together that we have, is that so many times we face uncertainty in life. So many times there's, there's stuff behind us that we can't go back, and what's before us looks chaotic like the Red Sea. And God doesn't ever say, I'll take all that water away. I'll take all the chaos away. God doesn't say, oh, you know what? Let me take you around it so you don't have to deal with it. God doesn't say, let me lift you up and take you over it. It, that's not what God says. He says, be still. I'll fight for you. Walk with me through this chaos. And there's something that's really interesting that happens 
Chapter 14, Israel is whining and complaining and they can't handle themselves. Chapter 15, they're rejoicing and praising God. When you walk through the chaos with God, that is the most transformative in your life. I'll tell you this year, God changed me. God changed my mind on something. God just changed me. And that was when we we went through this financial deficit time as a church, and most of you all know that. And we were praying and praying and praying. And and it's like, as a pastor, of course I know prayer works. Of course I know God moves. Of course I know all this stuff. But we got way more intentional about it. And and we were like facing this chaos of coming up an uncertainty and not knowing. And as we prayed, Lord, would would you help us out here? God met our need and even a little bit more. And it was like, wow. I walked with God through that chaos, and I'm the one that's transformed. I'm the one that's changed. And I think this is what he's trying to tell his church in Revelation 15, is that there's chaotic days ahead. There's difficult times ahead, but you can't go around it. You can't go over it. you got to go right through it. And I'll be with you as you do. So walk with me through the chaos. It's one of those dreadful truths that pain and hurt and chaos and brokenness, God could all use that for us to serve him and for people to be saved. A number of years ago, um, probably not too long ago, maybe 10 years ago, uh, before he died, Johnny Cash re-recorded a Simon and Garfunkel song called Bridge Over Troubled Water. And he did a way better job than Simon and Garfunkel, by the way. I mean, I don't know if, I'm sorry for all you Simon and Garfunkel fans out there. Um, but he, he, he did this song, Bridge Over Troubled Water, that was incredible. And it, and it just goes like this. When you're weary and you're feeling small, when your tears are in your eyes, I'll dry them all. I'm on your side. Oh, when times get rough and friends just can't be found, like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Like a bridge over troubled water, I will lay me down. Now, I don't know if you're trying to say anything theological or anything like that, but I was just... That song popped into my head this week as I was preparing for this message, and I just thought, it, it, Jesus almost whispering to say, when, when we're facing troubled waters, I, I'll lay myself down. When you're facing these troubled times, I'll walk with you. But it's not a bridge over troubled waters, it's a bridge right through troubled waters. Because that's where we're walking together. So church, there's times when troubled days are ahead. There's times where chaos is right ahead of us. And as we look at the world and its situation right now, it's hard to look at it with like rose-colored glasses and say, oh, everything's fine. God's in control. But there's some chaos ahead. And we have to walk with God through that chaos. It'll be a testimony to the world. So I got two questions for us today as we wrap up. One, when the judge does come, and we're going to again talk about this more next week. But when the judge does come, when he comes to town and, 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 and when he pronounces judgment and, and, and when there's wrath at sin, like, are you prepared for the judge to come? Are you ready for that judge to come and make all the wrongs right again? Are you ready for justice? Will that be a joyful thing for you or will that be a dreadful thing for you? And if the answer is a joyful thing for you, then there's some people that you know that that's going to be a dreadful thing for. And I want to invite you to share the gospel with them. Maybe there's a person right now on your mind that you just need to write their name down 
and you just share the gospel with them. That, that God can turn around what's happened in their life, that God could, could forgive them and give them a brand new identity and make them brand new. Maybe there's a person you need to share the gospel with because the judge coming to town is not so good news for that person. Because that's the reality. If it's good news for us, it's probably bad news for somebody else. So I want to invite you to share the gospel. But I also want to invite you to think of it as a little bit of a different way. So many times as, as, as Christians, we think of God as judge, and, and, and we, we think of this heavy-handed God with a hammer, boom, boom, boom. And, and yes, he is going to judge us, but he sees us through the blood of the Son. So he sees us pure and forgiven. Maybe there's some of you today who simply need to hear that. That, yeah, you, we're all going to be judged. But if you accept Jesus and say, Jesus, I invite you into my life, I just ask that we be, um, that, that you would transform my life, then he sees you through the blood of his son. And he sees you as perfect. He sees you as not guilty, as innocent. So I want to just invite you, maybe you, you haven't done that. I want to invite you to do that. But another way I want you to think of God coming, not so much as a judge, but as a groom ready to sweep away his bride because he's in love with you. Two, will you trust God to walk through the chaos or will you always stand on the shore crying? Will you always stand on the shore with excuses about why you can't go through the chaos? Will you always stand on the shore saying, God, I can't do it. Why'd you take me here? You know what? Forget you, God, I'm out. Will we always do that? Or will we walk through the chaos with the Lord? I don't know what it is you're all facing right now. I have no clue. But maybe this morning God wants you to walk through with him. Maybe that means something to you. I don't know. So I just want to invite the, the worship team to come back up, and as, as we close in, in prayer this time, the, the message time, I just want to invite you to say, Lord, walk with me through that chaos. And maybe there's some of you that need to say, Lord, cover me with your blood. Forgive me. There's going to be a time we're going to take communion in a few minutes. Maybe it's simply time for you to prepare yourself for that. Let's pray. Father, we think about this text, as we think about Revelation 15 and what it means, Lord, we, we're reminded of a people that are standing on the shore complaining. God, so many times we are that person. So many times we see the, the trouble behind us. We, we can't go back. We, we're scared to go forward. And, and we're just petrified to make a move. But God, if we know that you're with us, then we'll walk. And God, I think the scriptures are clear. But some people need that extra push today, that extra encouragement. So Lord, I pray that you would just come around people and say, I'm here. I'm with you. And there's some folks today who might simply need to, to surrender their lives to you and say, Lord, I, I've been trying to do this all my own and I've been trying to, to, to walk through this chaos all by myself and I just can't do it. I just can't do it. I need you to walk with me. Maybe this moment of surrender right now is simply all you need to say is, Lord, walk with me. And as God walks with you, he'll transform you along the way. Father, remind us of your great love for us. 
and that you gave us your son. We love you. We honor you. We thank you for all who you are. In your name we pray.